This evening we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 9. And as you make your way to the ninth chapter of Job, well, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the bulk of this book is centered around a conversation that unfolded between a man named Job and his three friends, namely Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And their discussion was primarily dealing with the reason for the pain and the suffering that Job was enduring as he lived there in the land of Uz. I'll remind you, it was back in the beginning of this book. That's when we learned about the day when Job's sons and daughters, ten kids in total, they all perished in a violent windstorm that knocked down the house that they were in. And then on the same day, his oxen and donkeys were stolen by a band of raiders, not Oakland raiders, but uh, Sabian raiders. But then after that, fire fell from the sky and burned up uh, all of his sheep as well as many of his servants. And then shortly thereafter, Job was then struck with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And listen, all of this was despite the fact that Job was a man who offered sacrifices to the Lord each and every day on his own behalf as well as on behalf of his kids. And with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that Job was wrestling with a very common question. And the question is this, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? We're of course talking about the problem of evil and many people wrestle with this question. Well, in response, Job's friends came to convince him that this wasn't necessarily the problem of evil. God wasn't allowing bad things to happen to a good person. No, instead, according to them, God was punishing him for the secret sins that he was committing and then failing to repent of. This was precisely the point that Eliphaz was making when he opened up his complaints by assuring Job that uh, he ought to be happy that the Lord was actually chastening him so that he might repent. So that was Eliphaz's first encouragement was, hey, you know, at at least God loves you enough to chasten you. Now repent of your sins and, and get back on track with the Lord. Job's friend Bildad then doubled down on this veiled accusation by encouraging Job to realize that the Lord would never allow this level of pain and suffering to come upon those who are pure and upright. And it was with this point of view that Bildad then encouraged Job to repent of his sins and return to the Lord so that he could receive the joy of restoration. Well, in response to these accusations, Job then decided to defend his track record as, a, as, as being a, a God-fearing man who shunned evil. And in the midst of his defense, we find Job, he's now continuing to wrestle with the problem of evil because you know he, he is not this man who was living in secret sin, and yet he is enduring this pain and suffering. And so he's still wrestling with this question about the problem of evil and you know all that just to say that his friends weren't helping him. <laughs> His friends weren't helping, and he's still questioning the real reason for why God uh, brought all of this calamity upon his home and upon his family. And as we continue to consider the confusion that Job was suffering with, as we continue to consider his complaints, uh, it's my hope that we would all realize that the problem of evil really is easily solved when we simply learn to rest in the perfect providence of our Almighty God. 
The problem of evil is simply solved when we just simply learn to rest in the perfect providence of our almighty God. And to explain what I mean, let's continue to consider the concerns and the complaints of Job that we find here in Job chapter 9. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here we learn about the day when Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God if one wished to contend with him? He could not answer him one time out of a thousand. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job, he's responding to the accusations of his friend Bildad, the accusations that we studied last week. And while Bildad concluded his comments by assuring Job that the dwelling place of the wicked will eventually come to nothing, Job responds in agreement. He agrees that the the dwelling place of the wicked will eventually come to nothing. And and he says here in verse 2, truly I know it is so. He begins with an, an agreeing statement. He's agreeing with Bildad that God will eventually punish the wicked. And while it might seem like the wicked are enjoying their lives today, well, we can be certain that the dwelling place of the wicked will eventually come to nothing. There is coming a day when God will punish the wicked who will not repent. Well, after agreeing with Bildad about this biblical truth, Job goes on to present him with an important question. And we find the question there in the middle of verse 2. It's there where Job asks, How can a man be righteous before God? Good question, Job. How can a man be righteous before God? In other words, if, if it's true that the Lord is eventually going to punish those who are wicked, how can then imperfect people become righteous before God? I'll remind you, uh, it's, you know, uh, in in the book of Romans where we learn that we've all sinned, that we've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. We're, We're all unrighteous to some degree. And so if God only receives the righteous then doesn't this also mean that we're all hopelessly lost? I like the way that Job continues to elaborate on this question. It's there in verse 3. He declares, if one wished to contend with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. In other words, Job here is answering his own question by assuring Bildad that those who attempt to contend with God, or, or and it's kind of a legal term there, those who attempt to take God to court in order to prove their righteousness, well, they quickly discover that they cannot win their case. You're not going to be able to go to court with God and then prove your righteousness before a righteous God. Job was effectively helping his friends to realize that there's no one who's righteous, no, not one. Now, I realize that there are those like Eliphaz and Bildad who think that they're eventually going to stand before the great white throne of God and prove their innocence. These are the kind of people that often say things like, you know, when I get to heaven, I got some questions for God. Really? What will those questions be? Why am I such a scumbag? Why am I such a sinner? Those will be the questions that sinners ask. 
You're not going to enter into God's holy courtroom and, and stand in your righteousness and present your case for why God should let you into heaven. And I can't even tell you how many times I've come across those kinds of people out witnessing, evangelizing on the streets. You ask somebody, hey, if you died today and you stood before the throne of God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say to him? And I can't even tell you just how many times somebody says, well, I've been a pretty good person. I mean, I've never murdered anybody. I'm not like Hitler or Trump, you know, like. Yeah, people tend to think that they're fairly righteous. And yet, according to Job, these people will not only be unable to defend themselves before the Lord. Listen, they're not able to to defend themselves one time out of a thousand Because we're all guilty before God. Now listen, uh, those who attempt to impugn the integrity of the Lord by suggesting that the Lord must have done something wrong and that's why I had to do these other things and these sorts of arguments will will completely be exposed before the throne room of God. And, And those who impugn the integrity of the Lord will find themselves fighting with the Almighty One. Let's consider how Job puts it here in Job chapter 9. Look with me there beginning at verse 4. Here, Job goes on to declare here, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and prospered? He removes the mountains, and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Now, here in these verses we find Job. He's acknowledging the fact that it's a complete fool's errand to contend with our creator. He says, hey, God is wise. God is mighty. He's almighty in strength. And who can harden their heart against the Lord and prosper? Who's going to be victorious in this fight? Who can fight an almighty God and win? No one. Not going to happen. And in order to illustrate his point about God being wiser than we are and stronger than we are, uh, Job takes the time here to describe the omnipotence of our almighty God. For example, it's there in verse 5 where we learn that the Lord is the one who removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. Wow. God removes the mountains. It's my guess that Job was referring to the days when the Lord punished the people with a worldwide flood. This would have actually been recent history for Job and his friends. Moses later described the flood as a time when the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen floodwaters but water moving that powerfully, that rapidly, is able to move mountains with no problem. And in light of what Job is saying here, I have no doubt that the topography of the earth was affected as many mountains were removed by the floodwaters that covered the earth. And at the same time, new mountains were being formed, which now encased the fossils of the critters that perished in the flood. That's right. The fossils that we find in the earth came from the flood. Listen, if you see an animal dead on a trail 
and, and you come back the next day, that animal's going to be scattered. The, the bones aren't going to be there all in the same place, slowly being covered by dust, you know, until eventually one day enough dust has covered it to form a fossil. That's ridiculous. We know that the fossil record was created rapidly and catastrophically. Clearly, this was an event of the flood. Therefore, all, these, all the fossils that you find in the mountains and the seashells on tops of the, of the mountain's peaks, I mean, clearly, this, this was all laid down by flood water. And the chances are that's what Job is referring to when he talks about the mountains being moved out of place. Job goes, goes on to describe the same catastrophic event there in verse 6 where he declares he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. Now, as we consider what Job is saying here, we should take a moment to ask, you know, did Job speak poetically about these pillars or, or did he really believe that the earth was resting upon literal pillars? Well, with this question in mind, you might like to know that it's later on in Job chapter 26 where Job goes on to assure us. It's Job 26 verse 7 where he says that God stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. So according to Job, in his cosmological model here, the earth is hung from nothing. The creator hangs the earth upon nothing. That being the case, well, we should take a moment to, to ask here, what are the pillars then that he's referring to here in Job chapter 9? Well, in order to answer this question, let's take another look at the context. Let's back up again and begin reading at verse 5 here again. Job declares he removes the mountains, and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. Now, uh, remember here that Job is convinced that our creator, he's hung our planet from nothing, Therefore, the pillars of the earth found in verse 6 must be something other than the foundation of the earth. Uh, And I would argue that they must be a poetic reference to the mountains, which contextually are found there in verse 5. The mountains being shaken out of place is a reference to the pillars that are trembling. Please understand that the the word pillars here, it's oftentimes used poetically in reference to the way that the mountains effectively touched both the earth and the sky. As a matter of fact, there were many in the ancient world who saw the mountains as support pillars for the heavens. And so it's my guess that Job here is referring to the mountains when he refers to the way that the Lord caused the pillars of the earth to tremble. Uh, Further proof of my point can be found in the fact that Job immediately shifts his attention to the skies. So he goes from the earth to the skies with a reference to the mountains in between. And notice with me again there, beginning at verse 7, here he reminds his friends that our creator commands the sun. And it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. Now, here in these verses, we find Job here referring to the way that our creator, you know, is able to stop the sun in the sky. We, we certainly uh, know about that from the scriptures. And, and not only that, but he spreads out the heavens. Notice the plurality there. He spreads out the heavens. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the heavens, well, this includes the earth's atmosphere, which then uh, includes the troposphere, the stratosphere, the mesosphere, the thermosphere, and the exosphere. Then there's outer space, which includes the geospace that surrounds our atmosphere, followed by the interplanetary space, interstellar space, and then finally, intergalactic space. 
Now, it's true that Job didn't use these specific scientific terms, and yet it's there in verse 7 where Job refers to the division between the interplanetary space found within our solar system and the interstellar space that separates our sun from the other stars that exist within our galaxy. We should also notice there in verse 8 where Job refers to the Earth's atmosphere, which begins with the weather patterns that are largely affected by the waves of our ocean. You might not know this, but the oceans here on Earth have a huge effect on Earth's atmosphere. We'll learn more about the hydrologic cycle when we get to Job chapter 36, when God comes along and says, hey, where were you when I did all these things? For now, I just want to draw your attention back to verse 9 because there Job refers to the interstellar space which contains the stars that make up the constellations which were called the Bear, Orion, and the Pleiades. Now, uh, later on when we get to Job chapter 38, we'll find the Lord asking Job several questions about the heavens. And and, uh, we'll find uh, the Lord asking Job, can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Here we find him referring to the heavens as part of the creation. And within the heavens, we find the Pleiades and the Maseroth and the Orion and the Great Bear and all these constellations. And and from this, we can see then that our creator is the one who not only created our immediate atmosphere, but he also created the interplanetary space found within our solar system. And not only that, but he also created the interstellar space, which contains all of the stars within our Milky Way or within our galaxy. And, and then what's even more than that is he created the intergalactic space, which extends to the ends of the universe. Now, in order to understand why the Lord would create a, a universe that's beyond our ability to even measure it, I want to take a moment to consider the lyrics of, of the song that we find in the 148th Psalm. It's there where the psalmist declares, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of light. Praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. He commanded, and all of this was created. According to the psalmist here, God created the expanses of our universe so that we might realize that he is worthy to be praised. For this reason that Job went on to acknowledge that our creator has accomplished wonderful works that are far beyond our exploration. I want to consider how he puts it again here in Job chapter 9. You would look with me there beginning at verse 10. Here Job goes on to worship the Lord by declaring he does great things past finding out. So we just got through talking about, you know, outer space and suns and Orion belts and these sorts of things. And then he just says, hey, he does great things past finding out. Yes, wonders without number. If he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? 
Here in these verses we find Job, he's helping his friends to remember that our creator is an infinite king who can only be seen when he chooses to manifest himself to us. And while it's true that our infinite king is invisible and immaterial, it's also true that this immaterial, invisible, infinite God is the one who created all of the material heavens and and the heavens of heavens, uh, which can't even be explored completely by natural man. And with that, with all that, you know, we're, we're led to a place of just saying, God is incredible. He's almighty and magnificent. And, and we can't even explore the entirety of his creation, let alone the entirety of his infinite being. Should we not then just be brought to a place of humility to say, praise the Lord. And with all of this being the case, Job confesses that it's not our place to question the decisions of our almighty creator. Who are we to question the decisions of an almighty God? What, you you, you don't like the way your day is going? And so God must be to blame? Who are you? Who am I? I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 9 there. He asks, Indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Christian, listen, we would all do well to remember that God is always right no matter how we feel about it. And I realize that this is a difficult truth to embrace, especially when we feel like God is being unfair to us. You know, we've bought into this whole autonomy and, you know, uh, my feelings must be justified and you must acknowledge the way I feel about things and these sorts of ridiculous ideas. Please trust me when I tell you that our feelings will be shown to be wrong more times than not as we stand before a righteous God. And before God is ever wrong in any decision that we've ever made, listen, if you felt like God was wrong, guess what? Your feelings were wrong. The heart of every human is deceitful and wicked, desperately wicked. And we've got to get past this idea that because I felt some way, then I must be right. God is always right, no matter how you feel about it. And in order to further grasp this truth, I want to consider the way that Job wrestles with his own emotions here. If you would look with me again there at Job chapter 9, we'll pick up our study beginning at verse 13. Here Job goes on to declare this. He says, God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. How then can I answer him and choose my words to reason with him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness." If it is a matter of strength, 
Indeed, he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, it would prove me perverse. Here in these verses, we find Job wrestling with the reality that God is right even when he feels like God was wrong. And even if he tried to plead his case before the righteous judge of heaven and earth, he's attempting to be reasonable before the one who created reason. God created reason. God gave us the laws of logic. You're going to outthink him now? (laughs) Of course not. Job even confesses that if he were to even try to present his argument, that his own words would expose him as being imperfect. He says, my own mouth would condemn me. My own mouth would prove that I'm perverse. Listen, when we stand before God, you know, if you're trying to make your case that you're righteous, all God has to do is hit the replay button on every single time you've ever felt guilty. Because that's evidence that you think you're guilty. That's your conscience bearing witness against yourself there. And as Job is wrestling with all this, he's effectively saying that, that I feel justified, I feel like I'm righteous, but then that would make God wrong. And he's just wrestling with the emotions of all of this. And now he's struggling with the emotional exhaustion experienced by those who start wondering why God allows bad things to happen to good people. Why not turn it into an actual, real, true question? Why does God allow bad things to happen to people who aren't so good? Because that would be more true of every single one of us. Why does God allow bad things to happen to people who try to do good things but oftentimes do bad things? That would be a little bit more true, wouldn't it? Can any of us say that we're good people, though? And not in the cool, like, southern sort of way, like, yeah, he's good people. But no, actually good in the sense of I always do what's right. None of us can say that. And yet Job is wrestling with all of this. And it's there again in verses 17 and 18 where Job declares, he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath, but fills me with bitterness. Without debate, these are the words of a man who was struggling to understand why the Lord was allowing him to suffer in the midst of this emotional storm. And I have no doubt that most of us have been here. At some point in our lives, I'm guessing we've all been here. We were trying to do the right thing only to end up enduring pain and suffering, uh, some sort of physical infirmity or some sort of emotional trauma that led us to start wondering, why is God allowing these bad things to happen? I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to live for him. I'm trying to serve him. I'm trying to to do everything that is uh, expected of me. And yet all these bad things continue to happen to me. Why? Why isn't God protecting me? And as the Lord allows us to experience the troubles and the trials and the traumas of this world, we start to wonder, is God good? And if God is good, why doesn't he spare me from all of this suffering? 
And listen, once we start entertaining these questions, it's not long before we start questioning you know, the, the righteousness of God. It's not long before we start questioning the goodness of God. And, and with this in mind, I want to consider how Job continues sliding, sliding down this slippery slope here. If you would, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 9. We'll begin reading at verse 21. Here Job declares, I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore, I say he destroys the blameless and the wicked. If the scourge slays suddenly, he laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? To sum up these verses with simplicity, Job here is effectively suggesting that the hand of the Lord is against every person, no matter if they're wicked or innocent. And what's even worse here is that there are times when it does seem like the Lord is allowing the wicked to excel while simultaneously allowing the innocent to suffer. You ever felt like that? Like, I'm I'm trying to do the right thing, God, but I'm suffering, and yet here's all these people I know over here you know, doing the wrong thing. And it seems like they're, you know, at least their Facebook posts tell me that they're having the best life, uh, you know. Maybe you're struggling to understand why God allows those who are evil to become rich and famous. Maybe you were passed over for promotion because your boss gave the position to someone that you know is punching the clock wrong, stealing time from work, not doing all of their work in the way that they should, cutting corners and these sorts of things. And you're like, God, why? I'm, I'm doing everything right at work. This person's doing everything wrong. They get the promotion and I don't. Why? Or you might be wrestling with the fact that the Lord allows children to suffer from incurable diseases. It kills me. I, I wrestle with this so much. Why does God allow babies to be aborted by, by you know, moms who could care less about their pregnancy and even see it as you know, a conflict in their own lives? Meanwhile, there's moms out there who would love to be pregnant and, and, and can't. Or, or there's women out there who would, uh, who would love to get pregnant but can't, I should say. I'm sure we've all struggled to understand why God allows the wicked to thrive while also allowing those who serve our Savior to suffer in any number of ways. Chronic illness. Poverty. Unable to grow a biblical beard. Some men can't. It's because of the curse. With all this in mind, I'm going to consider the question that Job presented there in verse 24. It's there where he declares, The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He, speaking of God, covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who else could it be? Here in these verses we find Job is wrestling with the question about God's responsibility, his culpability for all the evil that he seemingly allows here in this wicked world. And when it comes to this question, who else could it be? 
What he's failing to recognize is that because God is sovereign doesn't mean that he sovereignly controls every single thing that happens. I do believe that in God's sovereignty, he has allowed humans to share responsibility in their decisions. He even allows the devil and his demons some level of freedom. So when it comes to the question, who else could it be? Well, let's see. Could it be hmm, Satan? Could it be the demons that serve him? Could it be the depraved decisions of the sinful people around us? Could it be our own sinful decisions? Could it be the natural order of this wicked world which was corrupted by the sinful decision of Adam and Eve? And the answer is yes, 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 yes. All of those things are very possible. When it comes to the pain and the suffering that we all experience, there should be no doubt that our creator is the only one who is completely innocent. When he created the world and everything in it, it was all good. And then the devil came in and duped Eve, and Eve turned around and deceived you know, Adam, and they all ate, and then the earth had to be cursed, and here we go. Now babies die of incurable diseases. And while it's true that there are times when it looks like the Lord is allowing the wicked to flourish while simultaneously allowing the saints to suffer, we must not forget that the Lord has a righteous reason for every decision that he makes and for the things that he allows. Can God stop all evil in its tracks? Yes. But then wouldn't that be all of our demise? God has a plan for dealing with the problem of evil. That's going to happen. Of course, we'll consider more about how the Lord solves this on the cross, but then also at the great white throne judgment. So don't be mistaken. God has a a solution for the problem of evil. Those who say, well, because God hasn't solved the problem of evil today, therefore he must not be the God of the Bible. He's either not all good or he's not all powerful or he's not all loving. And This is nonsense. God's already revealed in the word how he's going to solve the problem of evil. It's just a matter of time now. But we would do well to remember today that God is the standard of righteousness. Those who attempt to impugn unrighteousness to God are failing to understand that he is the standard of what is right. In other words, before we can even begin to identify something as being evil, which just simply refers to the degradation of that which is good, Before we can even identify something as being evil, we have to have a righteous standard, which is universal. And how would we have a a righteous universal standard apart from a God that is beyond the universe? There has to be a righteous God for us to then say, oh, this is evil and that's not. And if God truly is righteous, and he is, well then, if he allows us to experience the trials and the troubles of this world, well, his decision is right, no matter if we disagree with it or agree with it. If he decides that the enemy is free to attack a God-fearing person, then it's the right decision because God is righteous. 
And it's right regardless of whether we understand the decision or not. Remember, God's ways are higher than our ways. Do you really believe that? I mean, do you really believe it? His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Do you really believe that? Sadly, there are many who, in their questioning of God's righteousness and goodness, you know, there are many who see this as a reason to just stop serving our Savior altogether. And instead, you know, they, they uh, start coming to the conclusion that, well, if God is going to allow the wicked to flourish, then why would any, anyone want to continue laboring for the Lord, knowing that he might allow us to suffer in, in, in the process? This seems to be the struggle that Job was working through here in our, here in our text tonight. And if you would... Uh, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 9, beginning at verse 25. Here Job goes, goes on to declare, Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away, they see no good. They pass by like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and wear a smile. I am afraid of all my sufferings. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my clothes will abhor me. Here in these verses we find Job. He's sharing his concerns about the final judgment, which will eventually result in everlasting condemnation. And as we consider this concern, it's important for us to remember that Job was in fact a God-fearing man. Job was a man who offered daily sacrifices for any of the sins that he may have committed and also for the sins that his kids may have committed. And with that being the case, you know, he was trying to understand why is God punishing me you know, for all the, for, 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 in all these ways after, after I served him in all of the ways that I've served him? He's still trying to make sense of, you know, I, hey, I've done all the right things. So why am I being punished? And, and if I'm going to be condemned after doing all the right things, then what's the point in doing all the right things? Now, I'll remind you, Job is failing to understand here he's not being punished for sin. No, instead, his faith was being tried by fire according to the good plan of God. But rather than realizing that the Lord had a righteous reason for allowing these trials and tribulations, Job here is beginning to believe that he's, you know, automatically living under the condemnation of God. And it's for this reason that he starts wondering, why continue laboring for the Lord at all? Why continue offering sacrifices? Why continue serving the Lord? If condemnation is going to be what I eventually receive. Listen, if a God-fearing person wakes up every day and serves the Lord to the best of their ability, and then at the end of that day, you know, they receive the same condemnation as those who lived in wickedness, what's the point in living for the Lord then? If our works aren't enough to satisfy God, then why engage in good works at all? This is the line of reasoning that, that finally brought Job to the point where he starts uh, to, to realize the reality that he needs a mediator and desperately. Let's consider how Job puts it here in chapter 9. Look with me there beginning at verse 32. Here Job declares, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. 
Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Job. He's beginning to realize that, you know, if the daily sacrifices that he's been offering are insufficient to save him, then what he needed was a mediator who could then step in and resolve the conflict between himself and God. And just to be clear here, the word mediator found there in verse 33, well, it's translated from a Hebrew word which was uh, which refers to an impartial arbiter uh, who could mediate between uh, two disputing parties. And, and what this means is Job wished that there was some sort of uh, arbiter who would act as an advocate on his behalf so that they could resolve the relational conflict between himself and God. Now, I don't know that Job really fully grasps you know, what he's saying here. I, I don't know if he fully recognizes uh, that he's actually speaking of our promised Messiah, uh, and, and the reason I say this is because we'll continue to look at his, uh, his complaints next week in the next chapter. And, and we re- recognize here that he kind of skips over this whole desire for a mediator and, and doesn't give it much thought uh, in, in the next chapter. But Job here, for a moment here, recognizes that mankind needs a mediator. Mankind needs a Messiah to accomplish the role of arbiter and advocate. And he was exactly right. As he realizes that his works are insufficient, he comes to the most reasonable conclusion, we need a mediator. And we can rejoice in knowing that Christ Jesus is our mediator. I like the way that Paul put it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There he informs Pastor Timothy that there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In other words, the logos of our invisible God clothed himself with the frailty of humanity so that he could come and offer himself as the ransom payment for our sins. And in this way, Jesus came to serve as our mediator, and as such, he is now able to resolve the conflict between a holy God and sinful man. I like the way that Paul puts it in Hebrews chapter 9. It's verse 15 where he declares that Christ Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. In other words, Jesus is not only the Messiah who came and died for our sins, but he's also the mediator who created a new covenant by which sinners can now be redeemed. And now, as a result, well, there is no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus. Now listen, if you're still here wondering if your good works are sufficient to save, then uh, take a page from the life of Job and realize it's not enough. You can wake up and offer, offer sacrifices every day. You can offer sacrifices for your kids. You can set out to serve your Savior perfectly every day for the rest of your life. But listen, if you have not placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then you are still under the condemnation of the law. I want to assure you that no one will be saved by the works of the law that they have done in and of themselves. 
Thankfully for us, Jesus accomplished the law for us as he dwelt here on the earth. And ultimately, that was accomplished there on the cross where Jesus received the punishment that we deserve for all of the sinful things that we've done. And those who will allow Jesus then to act as their mediator, well, they can rest in in the assurance that those who trust in Jesus have been covered with his righteousness. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he covers you with his righteousness and then acts as your advocate. And while it's true that the Lord will still allow us to suffer trials and troubles here in this world, we can rejoice in knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And the reason why? Well, it's because we aren't working for our salvation. We're serving because of our salvation. The born-again believer is not working for salvation. We serve our Savior because he saved us. And with that, I encourage you, look to the Lord Jesus Christ to be your mediator if you haven't already. Trust in him and allow him to cover you with his righteousness. Because those who are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ have escaped the condemnation of the law. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your